let's turn in our Bibles to uh, Psalm 71, our text for today. And, uh, you know, within God's providence or divine sense of humor or something here, um, the topic is looking back and looking forward in old age. <laughs> so uh, here we are. Um, just a couple things as we come to this passage. Um, I know that a number of you are in, in similar situations as the one I'm going to describe to you in just a second here. But uh, some years ago, my mother died, and I, I became the power of attorney for my father. Uh, he is in a, a lovely care community up in Pennsylvania uh, where he and my mom were living. But uh, I have his responsibilities for health care and for legal things and for all of his business affairs. He's 92 years old, and uh, he's making his descent into uh, that world of dementia that is so common uh, in, in many of our families, and with which you are often um, familiar, I think. But um, in talking to him regularly and in visiting him um, as often as possible, one of the questions that he constantly asks, and it's so hard to hear, is, why am I here? Why am I here? And how long am I going to be here? And why doesn't God take me to heaven? Constantly, over and over. Those three questions are revolving through his mind. And while he can't remember things much more than the moment that you're in, um, he still has that spiritual sense of, what it is that his purpose is, and where is he going. It's, it's a remarkable thing to me. Um, and given all these things, a while back I decided it would be good for me personally just to look into the scripture and see what the Bible has to say about this whole aging process. Um, what is it that God wants us to know about him as we get older? And... Um, are there any theological emphases in the Bible that keep coming up? Or are there any sort of patterns that God uh, speaks with in regard to becoming older Christians as we follow after him? And so the, the question that I was trying to really address was, what should really guide us in the aging process as Christians? Um, Turns out there's not a lot in Scripture. The Bible doesn't talk a whole lot about that particular issue. And so I went through every reference I could find in the Old Testament as well as the New. And um, what you find is not a lot said, but what's there is extremely profound. Very much so. And um, it's uh, something stuck with me that I read from J.I. Packer as I was doing that study. He said, learning to live with one's old age is a spiritual discipline in itself. And I, I think that's really a wise statement. Just getting your head and your heart around what this aging process is, is a new spiritual discipline that we need to understand and get with. Um, I was looking at some things that were, were recently written by Joan Novenson. Some of you may know Joan Novenson. He's the uh, senior teaching pastor at Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church. Um, he succeeded Sandy Wilson in that role. 
And recently he's written some things on grace-filled aging. And here's a couple of things that Joe said. He said, aging is the slow advance of some of the harshest marks of the fall. He says, in the, uh, it's the time in life when our bodies finally begin to resemble our true fallen spiritual state. So we're starting to look like the fall, the results of the fall. That's what we're dealing with. And as we have aches and pains and, and diseases and all that goes with it, what we're doing is we're, we're working through the results, the, the uh, product of the fall as it occurs in our lives, our bodies. And uh, one last thing Novenson said is that aging is the context. Now listen, aging is the context in which the long-term impact of sanctification is tested. Okay? So as we live longer and longer in Christ, uh, he's saying when you get toward the end of the race, you're going to see what sanctification really looks like whether it's richly manifested or unmasked as sadly absent. <laughs> so uh, we, are, we are becoming something. We are products of what this walk with Christ is like as we grow in our sanctification as well. Um, so just, just some thoughts about what it is that we're going to be seeing this morning in Psalm 71. Uh, Psalm 71 is, as you notice there in your scripture, one of these interesting and unique passages that has neither a title nor does it tell us who wrote it. Um, it is uh, most likely written by David. There is no author mentioned, but it sounds like David. And as you read um, scholars and commentators on it, they are... Um, primarily, at least the, the uh, reformed ones and the conservative ones, pretty convinced that this is David writing to us. Um, there are words and expressions and, and actually passages from other psalms that David wrote that are incorporated right into this psalm. And so we're going we're gonna to go with the assumption that this is David writing to us today. Um, and helpfully, Dr. James Boyce said about this whole passage that it's best to think of it in terms of what it says than its outline, okay? And that's the way we're going to approach it this morning because over and over, two or three big thoughts are um, repeated throughout the psalm. And we're going to think of it that way as we read through it. We're going to just try to understand the big picture of what it is that David is telling us about uh, this whole process of growing older as Christian people. So why don't we begin by reading together from this, the psalm, and let's just read the first three or four verses together, and we'll go from there. David writes, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O oh my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. Let's just take a moment for a prayer. Father, help us uh, all today as we hear your word speak. Uh, to understand what it, what it means 
to uh, be people who look toward an end together in Christ and how to live well in that process. Um, speak to our hearts then today through your word for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, um, speaking of David, the first three verses of the chapter that we just read are directly quoted from Psalm 31. Those first three verses are exactly the same in Psalm 31, which were written by David, okay, under the uh, inspiration of God's Spirit. And so he uses those same words again in writing at this point, and most likely he's writing as an older man himself, and we'll see why that's true in just a moment. But uh, he seems to be looking back over his life and uh, the situation around him and uh, giving some God-given wisdom about this process together. Um, something that you'll notice in those verses that, that we just read um, is there's a tone to this, okay? And if you look at those verses again, there are words that indicate the tone of this entire psalm. Look at it again. He talks about a refuge. He talks about being put to shame. He talks about needing to be delivered, um, saving him, um, a rock to whom he can continually go. You hear all that? What do you hear in those kinds of, of references? You know what I hear? I actually hear a couple of things. Um, one is a guy who's crying out in faith to the God that he's known for a very long time. Two, I hear a guy who's really insecure, which really, it surprises us as we read so many psalms, and especially ones like this toward the end of his life, that after all that he has seen through the decades of the stuff that David lived through, at that point in life to be as apparently insecure as David is. He's constantly looking for reaffirmation of God I need you. I need you right now. And those guys are chasing me. Where are you? And I'm going to continually look for a place for you to hide me. Um, wow. It says something about the reality of sin in our lives and in this world. And so, David, you hear this sense of insecurity as, as he writes. Um, some of these are actually military metaphors. David spent large portions of his active life starting when he uh, had his little encounter with that big, ugly dude, Goliath. And from that point on, probably as a young teenager, up to old age, he had nothing but enemies chasing him. On that day, uh, in the Valley of Elah, he made the entire nation of Philistia his enemy as uh, he struck down Goliath. And they were after him from that day until the day that God gathered him to himself. And not only the Philistines, but the Amalekites and the Moabites and all the enemies that would have surrounded Israel. So he had people chasing him his entire life. And when he talks about, I need you to be my rock and my refuge and my fortress, those were actually military sites. A rock was was kind of a craggy position where you could make a military uh, stand 
and have a good view of a field, okay, having the high ground, as they say, uh, without being vulnerable yourself. That, that's what a rock often referred to, a craggy place. Same with the idea of a refuge, a place, a defensive position where your enemy can't get to you easily. And there's one word that's really interesting. It's this word fortress. Um, he, I think, yeah, right at the end of verse 3, you are my rock and my fortress. That's the Hebrew word metsuda, or sometimes as we would say in English, masada. Does that sound familiar to anybody? No. Okay, let me tell you about Masada. Some of you have been to Israel, and you may have actually visited this site. But down toward the Dead Sea, there is a formation with very steep, high walls all around it and a flat plateau on top. And um, late, actually at about the time of Christ, okay, the uh, Roman ruler, um, Augustus at the time, went and took the top of that rock, that plateau, and turned it into a Roman fortress, mainly to hide his family from some civil war activity that was taking place within Rome. And he wanted a safe place for his family. When that time had passed, and during the time of the revolution, just before the fall of Jerusalem at 70 AD, um, a group of uh, Hebrew zealots went up on top of that mountain again, reoccupied that position, and about 970 of them spent three or four years living there apart from the rest of society. Their position was, we're going to be up here and stay away from the Romans. They can't get us up here. And by just before the fall of Jerusalem, the Romans had had it enough. And they said, we're going to go get those people out of there. And so what they did was to build a siege ramp right up the side of the, the steep hill. And that's still there today. You can still see it. Um, and as after a long process of building, they knocked down the walls up there and walked in. What they found was the bodies of about 970 Jews dead. They had made a pact together that rather than allow the Romans to kill them, there were certain of them that were going to be assigned with the position of uh, killing their own people. They burned their possessions. They kept their food stores so the Romans would know they weren't starved out. And they took their own lives. And that, that has become a sacred place, as it were, for Israel. And so when young recruits are sworn into the Israeli army, they're sworn in on Masada, up on that hill. And the, the phrase is, it will never be taken again. Okay? This is a significant thing. And so one of the words that David uses to describe the places where he wants God to hide him is that Masada. Be to me my Masada, my place of refuge, my fortress. Wonderful ideas. So... Um, at the end of his life, what we can say is this, as we begin to, to look at this psalm. David had apparently never found any security in life apart from God himself. Never. 
He found no military security. He found no security within his own political system as the king of Israel. He found no security even in his home life. His, his family was a complete disaster, just a, an utter wreck, and largely because of David's own foolish decisions. And so he had never found true security in anything but God himself. And that kind of sets the tone for, for the psalm as we come to it, okay? Um, what we're going to do here, and I think in your outline there, what I've said is we're going to try to take the long view, like David does, the long view of a life with God um, as seen from the perspective of old age. And what he does is he takes three views of it, and they're on your outline there. He looks back to the past, he looks at himself in the present, and then he looks forward to the future. And so that's, that's the way we're going to take his, uh, his thoughts this morning. So let's start with the past. David begins by looking back. And there are several verses there that we want to see. Verses 5, 6, and 17. Look at those. Verse 5. For you, are Lord, O Lord, are my hope, my trust from my youth. And when he says youth, he meant youth. We'll see how he means that in just a minute. Verse 6. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. That's interesting. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. There are, there are similar words to this, um, again, from David's pen. If you turn back to chapter 22 and keep a thumb in it, because there are several things that David uses right out of chapter 22. Um, but I'll read them to you. In chapter 22, verses 9 and 10, David says this. You are he who took me from the womb. It's the same idea. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. What he's saying, and he's not saying God was his obstetrician, okay, in taking him from his mother's womb. It's a Hebrew figure of speech which is saying, you have known me from the very beginning and even before, okay? There's no one who knows me like you have, God. You've known me from my youth and even before. Um, there is a great um, little passage. I, I think I have there in your notes also, and let me men mention it. There's a, a section from Jeremiah chapter 1, and Jeremiah has similar words. There are people in the Bible who refer to their relationship with God as something that God knew before they even appeared on this earth, okay? And one of them was also Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah chapter 1, he writes, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Those are powerful words. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. There's a sense in which God's knowledge of us, and not just knowledge of who we would be, but of us individually and intimately, is eternal. Okay? It's not just, it doesn't just start on the day of your birth. 
God has known you in eternity. And David says, God, you've known me like that. There's, there's a great uh, quote from Eugene Peterson that I included there on your sheet. And if getting up this morning was no fun for you, this, this quote is worth coming up uh, this morning for. He says this on your sheet. We are chosen out of the feckless stream of circumstantiality for something important that God is doing. That is a fantastic quote. We're chosen out of the feckless stream of circumstantiality, you know? Sometimes you feel like that's what your life is like. Just, why am I doing this, you know? It's so random. And our, kid, our young adults and students today are seeing that clearer than anybody. It's, why are we here? What is this whole thing about? And Peterson says, well, we've been chosen out of the feckless stream of circumstantiality for something big, something great that God is doing. What's he doing? He's saving. He's encouraging. He's leading others to himself, and he's using us to do it. There's another great quote from... uh, Peterson, just the next page, he says, my, life, my, my place in life is not determined by what market there is for my type of personality. That's awesome, you know? We aren't, we aren't just a little bundle of talents and personality traits and stuff. God's purpose and plan for our lives are much bigger than that. And David says, you know what? You knew me. Not only when I was born, you knew me intimately in eternity. And God knows his people that way. He knows you that way and me. So he looks back to the past. He takes another view, and let's just keep moving there on the outline. He takes, takes a moment to pause for the present. Verses 5a and 14a there. He says... For you, O Lord, are my hope. And then in 14a, but I will hope continually in you. I will praise you yet more and more. Key idea is that as he looks around and as he knows the work of God in his life presently, right now, what he finds is that the ground of all hope Now, right now, as we live our lives, the ground of all hope is in God and his promises. That never changes. And so whether we're talking about our young life as as people in Christ or older people or those who are living right now, what he's saying is, look, the ground of all my hope is you. All of our hope is gathered up in God and his promises. And so when my dad asked me, why am I here? What am I doing? When is God going to just take me? The only things I can come back to are the things that David says here. Dad, God knows you're here. God is with you here. He loves you right where you are. And if you ever doubt that, just think that he, your hope is in him at every moment. Okay? That's as far as I can go with him, is point his hope to the Lord who knows and loves him. And that's, that's all we need in our present-day experience. Um, 
he, and then he, at this point, he gets, starts getting real about who he is and uh, what he is as he grows older. And so look at verses 9 and 18. Verse 9, he says, don't cast me off in the time of old age. Now I'm getting older, God. Don't throw me away. Don't, throw me, don't just cast me out like a piece of garbage. Don't do that. Don't leave me out here. Don't cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. And then in verse 18, so even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me. I'm getting old. I'm getting gray. I'm getting white. Don't forsake me even these in, at this time of life, Father. Your, uh, okay, so you get the picture here. God, he was, he's very realistic about where he is presently as he aged at that point of life. Um, and I should just say, when he says, don't cast me away when I'm old, we, we have to know that that's not what God does. That's not the way God works. That's the way our culture works. When people get older and their capabilities are less, people say, old is irrelevant. Okay? And uh, all of a sudden, anybody of a certain age becomes marginalized simply upon the basis of their age. God does not work that way. And David knew that. Um, that's a message of our culture, that old is irrelevant. God doesn't value us that way. Why? Because he's known us before we ever were. Before David ever became a man of God, God knew David. Okay? Before he ever knew you, he knew you. Okay? And so let's, let's keep the perspective of God on our lives in the, in the process of aging, that he's not going to cast us away. He's not going to do that. He's not going to treat us like our culture treats us. Um, there's a great verse, and this is in chapter 92, Psalm 92. But it's one of those that, what, when I was doing my study, I found particularly profound. Um, the passage goes like this in chapter 92, verses 12 and following. Listen to this. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. David's using this um, wonderful metaphor of a, a tree that's growing. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of God. Here's the line. They still bear fruit in old age. That's, that's a line we should meditate on here. God's not going to cast us out because in God's estimation, we're still growing and we're still bearing fruit even as we age. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. We know people who are full of sap, you know, but um, he says that's what our spiritual lives are. They're still being infused by the life of God. And even though we're growing old, he says they're still fruitful. Fantastic. Great truth. Um, there's, a, there's a quote here by Tim Keller on that passage. Here's what Keller says. If we maintain fellowship with God 
over the years in the long view, there's a kind of freshness that can come with increasing age. It's the spiritual vigor that grows only out of years of trusting God. In prayer, coupled with the wisdom that comes from a treasure chest of rich memories, both sorrowful and sweet. Keller's saying, look, there's a freshness that comes with age, and it has nothing to do with chronology. It's the freshness that comes to perspective by having lived the years that we live. And you know what? Our young adults, our students, our children, our, the kids in our lives don't have any of that. They need the, the life, the perspective, the big picture that only someone toward the end of the span can provide. And God says, that's fruitful. That's very fruitful. That bears fruit, not only in our lives, but in the lives of the generations to come. And that's the last thing I think he says about his present position. In verse, back to uh, Psalm 71, in verse 18, right at the end of the verse, he says, uh, so even to old, old age and gray hairs, O God, don't forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation. He actually sees age as a missional function. Uh, it has a missional purpose. And it's not to us, okay? It's not about us. We have a missional purpose in living to the generations coming behind us. Um, so it's not about our generation, and no matter how great a generation is, and they are, um, the real focus that God has in the life of an aging saint is that he would influence, she would influence the generations that are coming. And so he's simply talking there about modeling, about living, just living. People are watching you in our younger uh, in the lives of our younger people. You may not know it, and they might, they'll never say it, but they're watching stuff. Um, and they want to they wanna hear what your experience with God has been like. Um, one of the things that young adults, I'm learning this from my, my dear colleagues here on our staff, because um, I don't know about young adults today. I know about older adults. I know about middle adults. I don't know about young adults. And I certainly don't know about college students or high school students. But our guys on our staff are so helpful because they're right in the middle of ministry to those people. And what they constantly say is, they want to hear your story. Young adults are thinking in terms of narrative today. And for, for them to hear the story of a person who's been walking with God for some time is a real unusual activity in their lives. They want to know your story. And this, for instance, those of you who are at second, this place is spilling over with young adults and students, many of whom would love at some point to just hear your story. You don't have to preach to them. You don't have to pre, you know, be a theologian. But just to have a chance to get to know them and to tell them your story. That's what we're talking about here. Until 
I can affect the next generation, says David. And even larger than that, there's something about our faith as we would view it from our reformed understanding of theology. Our covenantal faith is at its very heart generational, okay? It's about generations. This Sunday we're going to have baptisms. And my, my apologies to your Baptist brothers, okay? I don't mean to offend you here. But we're going to baptize some babies here on Sunday morning. And what we're doing there, those babies are not being saved. But what we're doing is we're acknowledging the covenant of God with those believing parents and that they are in the process of passing that covenant and its faith along to those children. And the baptism is marking that in, a, in an outward way. And uh, that is what we understand our faith to be. It's covenantal in its very essence, and it's generational. It's saying it's not about us right now because if we drop the ball, they're not going to get the ball. Okay? God is at work generationally, and David is very careful to point that out to us, okay? So past, present, and then he takes a look to the future. He looks beyond himself and the time when God's going to eventually gather him to himself. And so in verses 20 through 24, just look at that in Psalm 71. You who have made me see many troubles and calamities, you will revive me again. From the depths of the earth you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort comfort me again. Hear this? Again, again, again. You're going to keep doing what you've been doing. I will also praise you with the harp. There's David, always making music. I will praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O holy one of Israel. That's a lovely title for God that's used Rarely in the, in the Old Testament. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also, which you have redeemed. <laughs> and my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long. This is a guy who looks forward, and he looks forward uh, with the idea that my, jo- my joy is not going to be killed. I may be getting older, but I'm going to keep praising you. I'm going to keep worshiping you, and I'm going to do it uh, in a way that when people look at me, they're going to know I'm really worshiping. There's some folks probably in whatever church you're involved in where when you're worshiping, you look around and, wow, look at that guy. And he may be holding his hands up, or he may be passionately singing a hymn, But you know that dude over there is worshiping. And David says, that's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be playing my harp. I'm going to be playing my lyre. I'm going to be praising God with all of my voice. I'm going to continue to worship him. That was his perspective of the future. I'm not going to let my joy be killed, and I'm not going to become cynical. There's nothing worse than a cynical old Christian. Man, that's the worst. First of all, it's a contradiction. But there are plenty of them around, you know, these kind of grumpy old, yeah, you can't, yeah, this, 
generation's a bunch of garbage, you know, and they're all, it's always something. And David says, not me. I'm not going to get cynical. I'm not going to get grumpy. I'm not going to get bitter. No, 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 no. Um, don't be one of those kind of guys, you know. Be a David who looks forward and is going to be praising God and playing his instruments outwardly, obviously, and people are going to know whom he loves by what he's doing. And the focus of his praise is really important. And it's great that it's at the end of the chapter because the focus of this worship as he looks forward is in verse 23. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also, which you have redeemed. David's focus in his worship and praise is the redemption of God in his heart, in his soul. He's known that. He says, that's what's the engine for all the praise that I'm going to carry with me into the future. It's the issue of your redemption of my soul. Guys, let's, let's never think that these dear Old Testament saints did not know the reality of the redemption that we do. They knew that same reality. It hadn't come yet, but they look forward to the day when, when the fullness of redemption would occur and the, the benefits of it were applied to their lives right now, right then. And so he says, look, you are the one who took my soul and redeemed it. He knew what that was about. So he's faithful. God is faithful. And the older believer of all people should know that the best. Okay? So it's a look back. It's a look around. And it's a look forward that he gives us. And just as we finish... um, There's one last passage I'd like to point you to. If you turn with me to 2 Corinthians. Now we're in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now as as David would have written in the year 1000 BC, Paul writes to the Corinthians in the early first century. And, you know, there's a lot of... a lot of the same thought going on here in 2 Corinthians. Um, let's, let's look at the end of chapter 3, 2 Corinthians, and verse 18. He says, Brothers, we all with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from one glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, says we are in the process of becoming transformed. We're being turned into the image of Christ himself. Now, the next chapter, he starts talking about what David has. Look at chapter 4, verse 16. So, because we're in the process of being transformed, he says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away. Can we get an amen there? Though our, yeah, there we go. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Renewed. So we're not becoming older. We're becoming newer, says the scripture. 
Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Looking forward beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's where David's eyes were looking. He says, I'm wasting away. <laughs> and that's okay, because the things that are seen, this stuff and everything around me, is falling apart. The, the fall has affected everything. But what we don't see is eternal. And that's where we fix our eyes. David did it, brothers. We should do it as we look back, as we look around, as we look forward to what God is doing in our lives as he brings us to himself. Amen. Well, that said, I'm, I'm so glad to leave on that verse and to finish. Um, and thank you again, John, for the, the privilege that this has been. And um, I can't think of a better way. I, I think this is my last Bible study as a pastor, um, at least at this stage of life. And I can't think of a better way to do that than to be with you. And so thank you. Um, we are going to Buford, South Carolina. And uh, we're going to just see what God's doing down there and try to get with his program. And so uh, 43 years have been a privilege and an honor. And I'm so grateful to be able to finish right here at Second Presbyterian Church and, and with you. So let's pray. Lord, we, we gather our thoughts and our experience around David's. As we look back, we look around, and we look forward in our lives. And my prayer for myself and my brothers is that we would, in everything that we do, find the focus of our uh, praise and our purpose, your redemption of our souls. We thank you that you are the ground of all hope, and that when everything else is falling apart around us, you are, the, you are the standing fixed point to all that you've made us to be. And so we flee. We, we look for you to keep us in your Masada as we walk through the day today and the days of our lives close to you. We commend one another to you and your care for Christ's sake. Amen.